Hi, and welcome to Strangers on the Internet, a podcast about making online dating work for you. My name is Irina Manta, and I'm a professor at the Maurice A. Dean School of Law at Hofstra University. I'm also a dating coach and a consultant for the dating app industry. And I'm Michelle Lang, a senior lecturer in psychology at Christopher Newport University in Virginia and a clinical psychologist in private practice. All views expressed in this podcast are our own and not our employers. On our last episode, Professor Erin Sheely regaled us with her stories, and we learned a lot about dating as a vegetarian and as an academic across North America, keeping a close eye on suspicious types, and ultimately finding lasting love. Today, we are delighted to have as our guest another wonderful friend of mine, Catherine McFarlane. Catherine McFarlane joins us virtually today from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where she's currently working for the Department of Education while on leave from being an associate professor at the Southern University Law Center. Before that, she spent six years at the University of Idaho College of Law, among other academic positions. Like our guest last week, Kat experienced quite a change of scenery when entering academia, having practiced law and clerked for judges in cities like New York and Los Angeles, a very different kind of L.A. than Louisiana. She earned her bachelor's degree in Spanish language and gender studies from Northwestern University and her law degree from Loyola Law School in Los Angeles. Kat grew up in Italy, so she has quite the cosmopolitan background. Her dog Cooper is also a bit of a social media celebrity at this point. <laughs> Welcome to the Strangers on the Internet podcast. Kat, how about you give our listeners a bit of an introduction to your dating journey and how apps started playing a role in it? Sure. Thanks for having me. This is so fun and I love your podcast and I'm a fan of, of both of you. So I was thinking back to how early my online dating experience began and I realized that when I was living in LA as a young person in my 20s, this would be like 2003, 2004, that people were meeting online but through things like Craigslist I had a roommate who would somehow find dates on Friendster, which if you remember how hard it was to locate people that you don't know on Friendster, that was that was quite impressive. Um, I realized I, I think I posted an anonymous ad and then went on dates with people based on the ad that I post. And it was always like 10 paragraphs long, obscure literary references to books like Ethan Frome, as though that would, you know, bring my perfect suitor out of the woodwork, and it did not. And then in my 20s, I used, I want to say, Match.com, and I think OkCupid if it was around then. And then I was in a long-term relationship with the person that I married, and that person I was set up with. Um, my life changed dramatically when I was divorced at age 36 going on 37 and I was living in a very rural area in northern Idaho and both not knowing how to date after being in a long-term relationship for so long and the online dating scene had just changed so much that my first concern was really like is anyone interested in a divorced woman who lives in Moscow, Idaho? <laughs> but um, I went back on apps. I went on match.com and I actually met two different people that dated one for about three months and then someone else that turned into a year and a half um, relationship. And I've gone on dates. I the, After that, I had a relationship that was about a, a year long, but I, I've met really nice men, both in person and online. However, 
I think I am always concerned about my safety, maybe more so the, the older I get because I'm more aware of safety concerns. And safety concerns for me right now include being around people who are willing to be as careful um, with COVID as I am. And I don't know anyone, maybe other than Irina, who's as careful <laughs> about COVID as I am. So that's put a break on my on my dating. I The last time I went on, on a series of dates from an app was about a year ago. And everyone in my life is uh, encouraging me to to dip my toe back in. So we'll, we'll see. I'm like on the verge. <laughs> you bring up a couple of interesting points there as it relates to dating. And so you mentioned, well, with COVID, obviously the impact of if you're concerned about getting COVID and yeah. people are for a variety of reasons, just kind of, I'd prefer not to have it to I'm immunocompromised, things like that, where it would really potentially be serious for me or for a loved one if I did get it. And so these past two and a half years for some people have been really tough for dating because of mismatch in terms of COVID safety but between you and potential people you may be interested in dating. And that's that's one area that you have already spoken to that that can present a real challenge. Secondly, you had mentioned dating after divorce in yeah. an area, a rural area, which typically means not very populated. And then also, so just by virtue of it not being very populated, there's there's less people to choose from. But also that can present unique challenges when there are different how to say, like personality types or political affiliations or things like that in different areas. So you have been hit with a few significant limiters in in your dating experiences. We might ask you about several of them, but um, what would you say has been the most challenging limiter and how have you dealt with it? You know, it's it's interesting. I think when I was living in Idaho, so I lived in northern Idaho and Moscow, and there just there weren't that many men because there aren't that many people. <laughs> but um, I ended up, please feel free to laugh. So I, the first person I dated after my divorce, I was married to someone who was a very sort of traditional, buttoned up lawyer, which was part of the problem in the marriage. So after him, I married a very muscular, tall, uh, <laughs> former Marine. So I went from one extreme to another. And, and the person that I dated right after my divorce was lovely, even though it was probably too soon. And then after that, I dated someone from another branch of the military. And these two former military men happened to know each other, which <laughs> is what happens in a small community. Um, so originally, the problem was with just not that many men. But I think the limitation was I have so many years of education that I, I don't need someone to have a JD but I think that the person that I want to be with, I want them to be excited about books. I want them to be intellectually curious. And I found that that often correlates with people at least having gone to college. In Idaho, there, there was almost a crisis with respect to the low number of people that moved on from college, from high school to college. So there were, there were even less people who were college educated to choose from, which is a, is a bar that like you have to decide, right? You have to decide what your minimum standards are or where you think that intellectually intellectual curiosity comes from. I guess other, other barriers, I've lived in places where I'm 
progressively super liberal, at least by the standard of a state like Idaho, and and just the majority of people in that state are not. And so, you know, I, I don't know if I need to be in a long-term relationship with someone that agrees with me on everything. I don't need that. But there's certain bare minimums, like I want all of my LGBTQ friends to be able to marry and to and to not lose their jobs. And like that kind of conversation is a non-negotiable. And I don't want to have conversations with people about how wonderful President Trump is. Like that for me is is also a, a deal breaker. So the, those sound like reasonable limits, but sometimes it's hard to find people that your morality aligns with the values that you have decided shape who you are. And and those, I think those latter limitations that I just described um, were some of the harder ones when I lived in a, in a hyper uh, red state. I think that dating a Republican means something very different today than it meant five years ago. And with the country becoming more polarized, it's pretty natural that it, I mean, and there's been also a lot of ink spilled on the topic that this has had a certain effect on, on dating. And there have especially been like Trump voters complaining about the fact that nobody wants to date them uh, in places like Washington, D.C., even in places like that. So, I mean, to what extent do you feel like people are willing to adapt? Like, let's say not people who are like hardcore opposed to the values you're opposed to, but even if we're talking about things like COVID, to what extent are people willing to adjust their behavior to what your needs are to the extent maybe they're not usually not masking anymore or whatever it is they're no longer doing? So I, I'm going to go back a bit. I was dating someone. I was in a serious relationship when the pandemic began. And uh, we quarantined together and spent about two months living in the same space. We hadn't lived together before. And he knew that he knew the extent of my health issues and had been relatively like very supportive with one crisis or another, which is what I have rheumatoid arthritis and some eye issues. And sometimes you just have to go to the doctor and spend hours there and he would he would be there with me. Um, however, you know, in those think back to March 2020, when we didn't know, you know, are we could we get it from a, some surface that we touched? How careful do we have to be with groceries? And my position at that time was no interaction with anyone indoors, even with a mask on. It's not safe enough. We don't know. And I was guided by a, a friend who's a doctor who told me, like, you're just going to mitigate for known risks and for unknown risks until we have more information. So that was my position. In the midst of, so around Mother's Day of 2020, the person I was dating went over to his mom's house and sat outside, but masks were off and they were very close to each other. And then everyone who was there went inside and grabbed food. The food was uncovered. Um, you know, there was a lot of handing off of things like, giving him a beer and, you know, the the beer being open at the time. So like there was a lot of potential for transmission. I think even within some of our standards today, there was still potential there. So he had gone over to that to see his mom. Um, and I thought we were on the same page about him keeping a mask on, being around other people who are masked and being outside. And that was it. And he came back and told me, you know, I think he told me on the way home to our place. And I, I made him quarantine in a hotel for uh, 10 days until he could get a negative test because like trying your best, which is what he kept on telling me he was doing, 
it's just, it's not enough, right? Like you don't get an A forever. Like COVID's not like, good job. You did about B plus of <laughs> what you could do. And uh, as a result that I ended that relationship because I could not get him on the same page. And if this is like someone who's involved. Um, he runs an economic opportunity center for migrant people and undocumented people outside of Los Angeles, very tuned in to issues affecting marginalized communities, a, you know, a kind-hearted, good-hearted person, but he was just too sloppy when it came to, when it came to my health. So it, I, I think COVID ended a relationship for me, or at least my own parameters. And then, so I moved to Baton Rouge last, uh, last summer and I started dating. I, I went on dates with four different people. My friends were laughing. They're like, when you, when you start up again, you really, <laughs> you really start up again. And I posted that I was high risk on my profile, which is about as much as I've said about my health or my disability ever on a, on a dating app um, and made sure before I went on dates with people that they were vaccinated. And I was able to eat outside and, and do things that made me comfortable. And so it didn't get much further. And then I just got absorbed with work and didn't continue dating any of these people. But I did have to have very specific exchanges about their vaccination status before I was even willing to, to meet them for a drink outside. So I think something nice and promising about what you were talking about is you did find people. Um, so, so there are people. But to Irina's question, to what extent are these people willing to adapt to your concerns? You know, I, first of all, one thing I'm thinking hearing your story is and would be true for anyone, is that does go both ways. To what extent are they willing to adapt? And to what extent are you willing to adapt? And so something we've covered many times on this show is just the idea of compatibility and how important that is for a relationship, how we'll try to talk ourselves into, but they're so cute, or, but I really like that we both read Ethan Frome, um, and, and then pay less attention to other elements of compatibility. But I also think your story really highlights, so you were where you were at with what you needed, which as you said, admittedly was on the high end mm -hmm. of protections against COVID. You were more conservative than your average person, particularly after a while with what your expectations were. And so that is gonna create a challenge. And I think the outcome is, is, that happened for you is kind of important is you have to be willing to walk away if the compatibility is not there. And in this case, it's not just compatibility. It's also courtesy in, in certain cases is it's not just, well, I have this preference and I have this preference for one of us. It's about my health or something that's a high level value for me. And so the courtesy issue, I think would be a turnoff to me, even if I was more forgiving about say, okay, they have more relaxed COVID standards than me, but if they wouldn't be willing to simply wear a mask because they knew that I, their girlfriend or person they're dating would feel significantly more comfortable or safe if they would. It's the courtesy thing that I think would be a problem. Yeah. And I, I have to say, you know, as I talk this out, I have decided by not, I mean, I've been very busy in the last year and a half, but I've also made this decision on my end that I think there's no one out there that will be as careful as I am, which is me taking myself out and I explored this theory with my therapist, but she would probably say, but you don't know there, there may be men out there who are, you know, either have family members or themselves are immunocompromised. And, 
you know, to like open yourself up, right? That's what everyone says when they encourage you to go back on apps and to try dating, to, to not close doors that, uh, you know, may not exist to, to begin with. So I think, and I, the people that I dated last summer, I never let it get to a point where the conversations had to be hard, but what I have fended off, there's some things that, so I like to chat with people quite a bit before I go out on a date in part because I like to text. I like to, and I also like to see how they express themselves in, in writing. And there's sometimes when people have terrible grammar and spell things incorrectly, it's a, I know it's a turnoff and it's always going to be a turnoff. So I can see that off the bat, but there was one person I was talking to who I thought would be quite compatible. Um, I liked everything about him. But then he mentioned that um, his kids were not vaccinated yet. We were talking about vaccination and he told me that he had to be vaccinated for work, but he was kind of put out that he had to be vaccinated for work. He didn't like that fact. And then as he was talking about his kids, I think I asked if his kids were vaccinated. And before he told me they weren't, he said, oh, I didn't know kids could get vaccinated. And it kind of blew my mind that as a parent, because the parents that I know have been you know, counting down the days and it's just been horrible to see the way it's affected their lives and you know the the relief when their children were able to be vaccinated and to be talking to someone that was so flippant about it but also out of the loop with respect to their kids safety so that you know and sometimes there are parenting red flags that i'm not a parent myself but the way that men treat their children is something that i consider as well right so that was an that was an immediately that was immediate red flag that caused me as a result of covid to to filter him out and to encourage him along the way. <laughs> I think I sent him like CDC links <laughs> and information to make his kids safe, you know? You know, there are two things I've been thinking about a lot that relate to this in sort of the, in terms of the changed landscape during uh, COVID dating. So for example, uh, one issue is exclusivity in dating. So I used to say, you know what, uh, to women, straight women, you know what, uh, wait until the guy brings up exclusivity because that way it's more trustworthy in a sense, right? Um, because otherwise he might kind of go along with something and may or may not even keep his word. But now I wonder whether it's important to talk about exclusivity from the beginning because even if you're going to go out for an outdoor date is it going to result in let's yeah. say a kiss at the end and is that something where you want to know how many other women they might be kissing and then the second issue which is tied to this and i love your thoughts on on both of these related issues is Michelle and I have talked a lot on the podcast, as you know, about people lying on the apps and lying during their texting exchanges. So if somebody says they're vaccinated or that they did a rapid test before meeting, do you and should one ask for evidence? Do you ask for, I don't know, a picture of the vaccination card, a picture of the rapid test? And you can, there are technical ways to tell if a picture was taken that day or not, or, you know, things like that, or are you willing to take things at face value? So any thoughts you have about these two topics, I'd love to hear more about. It's funny. I, I write a lot in my work about the power of self-attesting to some of your health conditions. And there, so quite a few, uh, for example, universities that require vaccination um, don't require documentation. They allow students to, to self-attest, to faculty to self-attest, which, as I say that out loud, feels a little bit problematic to me because of the potential um, for fraud. So I took people at their word when they were vaccinated, in part because there were conversations about 
that we had about how important it was, how frustrated we were that other people weren't vaccinated. So I felt, I felt comfortable that way. I haven't asked someone to do a rapid test, I think, because I haven't been in an indoor dining situation. Um, the friends that have very kindly done it in advance of like me coming into their house, we both, we didn't say we were going to, but we both took photos of our, our tests and sent it to each other. And so I think if that came up again, I would proactively take a photo of my own results and send it to them. And I think that would probably result in, in giving me one. Um, there are some ways that you can, I think you can tell if someone just does not care about your health, it manifests in ways that pop up way before you ask them. Like they just will say, no, I won't take a rapid test, right? Like they're, they're definite red flags or people complaining about how long COVID has gone on and how they just want to get back to normal. People who complain about masking, like, yeah, it's super, it can be super uncomfortable to mask, but like, come on, it, if I'm ever having conversations with people that are not willing to value human life over their own discomfort, those are red flags to me that I think I can say will predict bad behavior down the line. So before COVID, as a, I've been highly immunocompromised for most of my life. I've been, I've had rheumatoid arthritis since I was 13 months old. So I've always been um, on some form of immunosuppressant. So I, I get sick very easily, um, always had a ton of ear infections. Anything that hits someone else as like a minor cold turns into a disaster for me. So there were conversations I had to have way before COVID about people needing to tell me if they were sick, if their family members were sick, and my close circle of friends were, were great about it and understood that if they like had a cold, they would tell me in advance and we would just adjust our plans. The hardest way this came up was when I was married and I had in-laws who just were not interested in even talking about the, the way that having an autoimmune disease affected my life, would often want to come and visit while they were sick or right after they were sick. And it would go to the extent where, for example, my mother-in-law was recovering from certain sort of illness and would, would be the person preparing the food. And so having to put limits on that, that are in general, again, common courtesy, <laughs> but for me, a, a matter that, you know, not life or death, but like whatever someone else has is so much severe in me that I had to have conversations. So unfortunately in my marriage, there was friction surrounding my comfort level, the willingness of different people in my orbit, people that I interacted with as a result of my marriage, my in-laws, my brothers-in-law, there were tons of cousins. <laughs> and uh, although in one-on-one, -on -one, my then husband was you know, good about my health and, and protective of me, he was not willing to have hard conversations. I mean, I say hard, honestly, it's not hard to say, don't do things that put my spouse's life at risk. Unfortunately, he wasn't willing to protect me in that way. Um, there was a lot of conflict avoidance. And I, I think that that permeates some of our COVID discussions too. It's, it's not that people disagree with you, it's that they're not that interested in taking up your cause if it creates even the possibility of friction with others. I, I think a lot of our, our COVID practices have fallen apart because people who are conflict averse are not, are not willing to stand up for others. So 
gone from my marriage to COVID, but I've, I've thought, I've, I actually have said this to my mother quite a bit. I am really relieved that I am not in that marriage in general, but I'm really relieved that I don't have to have those types of conversations during the pandemic because I'm certain that family that I married into, I have no confidence that they are being <laughs> careful with others or, or following COVID protocols. So there's, there's some blessings to divorce, both with respect to your ability to experience joy and happiness and, and move on. And, but also I, it's made me reflect on um, that I deserved better within that context in my marriage. And also I'm just glad I don't have to deal with those people <laughs> right now. Kat, if I can follow up, because I think a lot of our listeners would be interested in, you've mentioned several times now that you have dealt with health issues your whole life. And so even pre-COVID, and for those of us thinking ahead, post-COVID, who are entering into the dating world, who have significant health issues or otherwise people with disabilities, what challenges have those presented for you, even in the pre-COVID days, dating yeah. while having a disability? Yeah. So I am less well now than I have been in the past. Um, the pandemic has been hard on me physically, and this is a dating podcast, so I'll be honest. I've, I've gained weight. I don't feel good about myself in the way I have in the past. But I think in general, when people met me or they just read my profile and even like just observing me, I have generally a disability that's invisible. So, and I'm also, um, I'm an active person, like even when I'm in the throes of a rheumatoid arthritis flare, I'm still someone that exercises quite a bit. You know, I lead a full active, active is a bit of an exaggeration right now, but I've led a full life. So it would appear to someone that doesn't look closely or doesn't know what kind of signs to look for, that I'm not a person with a disability. And so there's, there's also a lot of privilege in being able to kind of, I think pass is, is maybe not the right word, but I can move through different aspects of my life and not have to experience the prejudice that a lot of people with visible disabilities experience. So the way it comes up um, in the early stages of a relationship is I always tell people because they're going to see medicine lying around. You know, it's hard to explain that I have to go and get a four hour infusion on a Friday afternoon that's going to wipe me out. Like they just, they just need to know. And at least in the last five years, you can Google me and I write a lot about what I have. So you, you can figure out what I have. But the way, so I'm thinking back to a date I went on with with someone in LA, um, maybe about a month into the relationship, we went to a soccer game in this amazing stadium in um, downtown LA. And we were moving from one row of seats to another and he was climbing over the seat. And the step down from the seat to the ground was was the kind of, leap that it's very hard for my knees. They don't, they're not, flexion is limited. And in the moment that he was moving very quickly, it became very obvious because I had to slow down. Like sometimes going downstairs is hard. I like to have a handlebar. So it became immediately obvious, not just to him, but to everyone around us that there was something wrong with me. And I felt embarrassed and like, I didn't know. And I told him that I had mobility impairments and this was a person that I think wasn't too intuitive about health. It didn't occur to him that like climbing over stairs and taking these big steps would be a big deal. So I, I felt like I had to share in much more detail with someone who didn't have the ability to kind of think through those situations. And I, I felt a little resentful of him. And I had I experienced some pain because of all of this 
leaping over <laughs> rows of stairs. So sometimes it comes up in the moment in ways I always try and predict, to be honest. Like if I know what we're doing, I will like map out every single possibility and think through, will I have enough time to sit? Is this going to require too much standing? Are there benches? I've had discussions with people about, and I'll say, I'm willing to pay for, in, in Los Angeles, parking is always an issue. So you pay more for the better parking. So I always volunteer to pay for the better parking, both with partners and with friends. And a nice person will say, no, no, of course we're getting this parking. Like you're not going to hurt your knees by walking too far. People that aren't as perceptive or maybe as caring might be a little bit resentful of having to pay or even to go in a lot that's closer and say things like, what do you mean? We can just find, you know, another parking space down the block and we'll just walk a little bit. So there's these little moments of friction that require you to, that require me to disclose a lot more of like the, the finite nature of my disability that I often experience just very privately and make decisions about very privately. Um, and uh, some men are not great at like figuring out what scenario is going to work best. And others are terrific. It's, it's interesting. It's not like men are incapable of being a wonderful ally to someone with mobility impairments. Some men just don't pay that much attention <laughs> you know, in general. I have a follow-up question for you too. So, you know, you're speaking to your experience as somebody with what is to outward appearances an invisible disability. And, you know, I think you very astutely pointed out it's different in some ways than people who have more outwardly visible disabilities. And and so, you know, thinking about what you said just now about how sometimes you find yourself in situations where you feel almost forced to disclose more than you might feel comfortable disclosing at that point or with that person, whereas somebody with more outwardly visible disabilities, they, they have to do that even earlier on. And so understanding we're talking about, to some extent, some different situations here. But do you know, I'm, um, I'm addicted to the Reddit thread, AITA, am I the a-hole? Yes. And yeah. I recently saw a post on there about somebody who was asking if he was the a-hole because he and his pregnant partner had gotten on the subway. And he said, normally there's a couple of seats close to the doors that would be for people who have limited physical abilities or have physical disabilities. And he said there it was a crowded train. There were two seats there. Both of them were full. One was an elderly man with a cane. And so he said, I'm like, I'm not going to ask him to get up for my pregnant partner, my visibly pregnant partner who was with him. And she, I think, was like almost nine months along, so very pregnant. Um, but the other person sitting in the seat was a 20-something who looked to be in good health. And so he asked, sir, would you mind giving up your seat so that my pregnant partner could sit down? And this man said, you know, I also have a disability. Mm -hmm. and, and in his case, actually, he said he was autistic. And he said, I'm also entitled to sit in the seat. And no, I'm not going to get up. And so then a conversation between the two of them ensued about whether that is a disability that's relevant having this seat for. Finally, somebody else offered up their seat and the pregnant person was able to sit down as well as the other two people. But then the man went on to Reddit later to ask. And I think unsurprisingly, but very interestingly, people did say, yes, you're the a-hole because you don't know, you shouldn't have to ask somebody 
you can ask them to move, but if they tell you, no, I have a reason to be here, it's somewhat obnoxious of you to, to question their own assessment of what they can do or not. And then I thought people gave very good education on that thread about with autism, particularly how there could be sensory issues or things like that, that where sitting versus standing could, could impact. And, um, but it makes me think about your situation as well and what it would be like in the dating world for somebody, do people get frustrated that they can't see your disability and so they don't understand how it might impact you? Yeah, and it's thanks for uh, the question and for sharing uh, that particular Reddit thread. I live in fear of someone yelling at me when I use. I was just talking about this on Twitter. When I use a, I have a parking placard, and I mean my RA is bad enough that I take two different forms of chemo. But now, ladies, I don't look great today. But like you wouldn't know really if I'm getting out of a car, I don't look disabled now. So what happens is people come up to me and start yelling at me about the fact that I'm parked in a disabled spot and I'm not disabled. And am I using my grandmother's placard? Interestingly, this has also happened at hospitals where like I'm coming back to my car with a bandaid on where they've taken a blood draw. And it's like, what, like what else do I need to show you? So I'm sensitive to, you know, I worry about using services. So I think I actually, I lived in New York. I took the, the F train into Manhattan quite a bit out of fear of people asking me if I was disabled enough. I just stood and rode in pain for the 30, 35 minutes. Um, the only time I felt comfortable sitting down, I, I used a, a cane for a little bit and it was like, for some reason, everyone interpreted me being on a cane as like having something temporary. Men would hit on me and they would be like, great job. It's not that much, you know, hang in there, opening the doors for me with me and my cane. People were like ensuring that I had a seat on the subway. Now, this is not just about having a cane. This is also about like at the time being like a cute, bubbly blonde person. <laughs> and so it was it was this strange window into men thinking it was an invitation to like make a flirting connection with me. Although in New York, I, men are so creative that you never know <laughs> like <laughs> when flirting is going to um, open up. I think in, in relationships, again, in some ways, it's not that different from, you know, what we all talk about our partners and the, the difficulties and challenges that arise. And what I tell people who are newly diagnosed, RA is something that often women come into in their late 20s or early 30s. Sometimes it, unfortunately, the onset happens after you have a baby. Um, and so we talk about like, how do you manage relationship stuff? And the good men just roll with it. And the men that were a pain in the ass before and didn't help out with childcare and didn't help out around the house, don't suddenly start, <laughs> you know, doing things that are useful to you as a, as a person with disabilities. I'm part of this Facebook group for people that I think it's called like still coveting. And I have to tell you, it's so fascinating. The majority of the posts are by women whose husbands or partners are constantly pushing against their desire to keep themselves safe during COVID because the women, I mean, we have women who have on that Facebook group that have cancer and are going through chemo and have to have daily conversations with their husbands about why the husband needs to wear a mask when he goes to the mechanic. 
And so what I say, and I, I'm surprised I haven't been kicked out of that group yet. I say things like, you deserve so much better than the questions your husband <laughs> is asking you. And then there will be, and women will go through all these scenarios like, should I go and stay with my mother and take the kids for two weeks? And so I come into that conversation and say, I understand, you know, relationships are very complex, but if you're at the point of figuring out how you could like, someone was thinking of renting an apartment to get away from her husband who wasn't as COVID careful at that point, that's not a, like, that's not a relationship that you as a person who deserves to be treated with dignity, uh, and care should really be in. So sometimes it reveals just bad behavior or the bad behavior is there already. Trying to think back to, I think for the most part, I've, I've had kind people that um, are kind men that are willing to, to learn and understand a little bit more. I think it did the amount of like surgeries I had in my marriage, I think annoyed the person I was married to, but unfortunately, the bigger issues were with his with his parents, and and often I think people will find that even if their partner is okay, those those other parts of the relationship in in laws that you know want to see you and if you have kids want to be a part of your life that way, if they're not on the same page, it becomes very difficult. And so what happened in in my marriage, my husband did most of the the cooking. He's a great cook, um, and part of the reason he did that was it's hard for me to stand and to cook bit of an excuse because I hate cooking and I'm terrible at it, but he was the person that cooked. I think in, if the roles were reversed, no one would ever say anything about it. And it was obviously, it was very, very much a result of me not being able to stand in the kitchen. It drove my mother-in-law nuts. She thought I was like holding him back from his full potential. <laughs> that he was like stuck in the kitchen, you know, like living this miserable experience. So it's interesting to the extent it converts the man in your life to someone that has to do a little bit of caretaking. That involves some gender role switching that can make, if not your partner, but other people around you uncomfortable. First, I wanna first I wanna say something about the the still COVIDing groups, and I know exactly what kinds of threads you're you're talking about. One of the problems and difficulties that I think some people have been facing is that the prospect of divorce actually means exposure to a greater COVID risk rather than smaller, because when they're no longer together and a lot of people who are dealing with parenting, are, are from, including many friends of Michelle's and mine, are, are, mine are, are dealing with this, where in part because courts have not been willing to enforce anything but the most elementary thing. So I'm thinking there have been fights about whether the kid should get vaccinated. And I, I think it was in an NPR piece that it mentioned this one case where it cost $11,000 to go to court just to get this one narrow question resolved. And, and the courts have sometimes said or often said when it actually came down to it, yes, the child should get vaccinated, but the process and the cost and the duration I mean, and, and everything else, forget it. Like being able to say you have to mask or the kid has to mask while with you or any of that, don't let random people in the house. The courts are, are unwilling to get involved in that. And so if anything, like people with children really are held hostage when oh they're with God. somebody, whether they stay in the marriage or not. So I wanted to highlight that, but I also yeah. wanted to ask you, and this is very, very interesting, everything you're saying on the, on the gender role front and, and the resentments, have you found that in, in dating and relationships that when there had to be adjustments, whether it meant, okay, we're going to have to walk more slowly, or I'm going to have to do more of the cooking because you can't stand that long or whatever it is, that 
There were other areas where then the person you were dating or maybe people you know have had this experience said, okay, but then I'm willing to do less other stuff. You're already, your disability is already mm -hmm. forcing me to do X, Y, Z. So there are other areas where, you know what, I'm going to, I mean, I'm going to take an extreme case where somebody like withholds affection or just, just kind of mm -hmm. punishes the person or tries to even things out in some in some twisted way, uh, because they are resentful in part because we are stuck in, you know, well, in the patriarchy. <laughs> so yeah. that's, that's interesting. I, so first off, thank you for reminding me of what parents are, are going through. And I'm sorry that I didn't take fully into account what that calculus is. And I'm, I'm thinking back to my experience as a child going through my parents' custody battle, which happened to be international and I'm remembering my mother's fear about what it would be like when she had to put her three kids on a plane by themselves to head off to Rome, Italy for the summer and, and her inability to control. So for example, my father rented a like bachelor pad in the middle of Rome that was on the fifth floor of a building with no elevator, even though one of his kids had a mobility impairment, like people are ridiculous. And I'll, I'll mention just, it's funny. My dad is one of the worst people in my life about understanding my disability, even though my dad, aside from my issues with him, is generally a pretty sensitive um, and thoughtful person. So with respect to, you know, like the quid pro quo nature of like, I'm doing this for you because of your disability, I, I don't know. I think I would probably break up with someone if that got too extreme. I can think of conversations where maybe men were like, well, we to the extent that like an activity was planned around my disability, that might be treated as, well, we did this for you. So now we're gonna do something else for me. But that feels toxic enough that I, I might like move on from that relationship. There was, when, this is before COVID, but I had to be very careful about people who were like, had bad colds and were around me. And I was dating someone and I said, you know, before you touch other services, if you blow your nose, you need to wash your hands which as I say that out loud now, it's like, oh my God, I can't believe you had to say that to someone. But the person I said that to got so annoyed and treated it as such an imposition that it became a conversation about like, well, then I just, I don't know why I should be there. I guess I, I guess I won't stay over or come over if this is what you're going to make me do. And again, it's like, that's a ridiculous position and you're throwing a tantrum that I would expect of a child, not of a grown man. And so I, my, my personality and my attitude with that is I tend to get very calm when people get angry. So I just say, okay, I'll see you next week. Let me know when you're ready, <laughs> which sometimes either makes them rethink their behavior. Um, what a superpower that you have that ability. Not always, but like, and it drives them nuts, but I'm trying to think. So the person that my, I hope that my ex-husband listens to this because it's the truth, Tom. <laughs> But he would be a bit of a martyr with respect to, um, like, he talked a lot about how much cooking he did for me. And if he, like, <laughs> cleaned the bathroom, he would bring it up. I've been, I might smell like uh, bleach because I've been cleaning the bathroom. Like, he said this to a friend of ours. And my, and my girlfriends are, you know, in relationships where, like, there's, there's an exchange. Not always fair, but, like, dude, why are you talking about... <laughs> Like Do you cases. like an award? Yeah, exactly. It felt yeah. like that. Like it felt like, and, and and again, some of that was was the the gender role issue. But um, I've 
I have a funny knows. comment. I have a funny yeah. comment about that. When I was, the, I, it was the year I was clerking, so 2006 to 2007, there was a New York Times article, I think, that talked about, you know, some of these, uh, some of these themes. And, and if I remember correctly, and this is a theme that came up a few times, if I remember correctly, it talked about how, I think how you should treat your husband the way that dolphin trainers treat dolphins and it was something oh, yeah. like oh, you have to, do you remember yeah. this how you have to turn it into a really big deal when they did something great and somebody that i knew here's the funny part somebody that i knew her husband her husband actually said to her i think and i don't know if he was kidding or not but i think that's a great idea i would really like you to do this <laughs> and i was just tell like you. what yeah, as a therapist, I have given similar advice. I didn't know about the dolphin training article, but we do talk about with, I do with clients sometimes. Look, you know how when a child does something really good, you are over the top with your praise for it. And I was like, look, I think a charitable way to put it is we all have our inner children. Truth be told, if somebody gave me a sticker or a star or an award for adulting, I'd be pretty happy about it. You know, it's nice to be recognized, even though you know you should be doing it anyway. So I always try to focus on it's just operant conditioning. And so it's just people are as susceptible to that in a lot of ways as animals. We're more complex. What is rewarding and what's punishing to us may be different or not as obvious as with animals, but uh, that works. <laughs> I was just going to say, I've read about this, about how um, apparently men do more self-marketing of the things that they have done in the house than women do on average. So it's, this is very much part of a trend, but please, Kat, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, it makes me think of the men that call watching their children babysitting oh. and like, or the way that, you know, as women sometimes will compliment men who are doing things like watching their children and not allowing their children to die at the park. Like, oh. <laughs> such an amazing father and I have to stop myself, but it's unfortunately rare to see dads that are always involved in public. So I think honestly, it's maybe even more than my disability. I was raised by parents who like didn't let us play games that enforce too many gender roles. And there was very much, or I guess a lack of indoctrination about what a woman's proper role is in a relationship. And I, it was, probably super feminist, although there are different ways that sexism played out in my in my parents' relationship. My dad in particular was very much, and, and we were told, you can do what, what you want. Um, maybe don't go to business school. We don't like that. My my dad worked for the United Nations and my mom is a, is a teacher. So I think they are like way left-leaning. I don't cook in part because like this was not something that was expected of me. I don't think my younger sister cooks, my middle sister maybe a little bit. I don't want to sound like I'm bragging. I come from a family of three girls and we're all conventionally attractive. My sister is much more than me. So like some of this is just like white privilege that cancels out some of the other stuff. But the, the things that become difficult in some of my relationships are more about my identity as a woman and my idea that I'm a big personality I have opinions. You know that about me. In part, you like that about me. You know, I, I went to law school. I'm an assertive person and I'm going to be that person. I'm going to be that person with you. I'm going to be that person with your family. Now, I'm not going to ever be rude to anyone and, you know, especially to, to someone's parents, but that creates far more friction. And in, in, in my, 
you know, despite all my insecurities, my sense of self is very strong. And my sense of the idea that if I'm a relationship, I'm not going to compromise about what I think is an appropriate exchange of, of household duties or the way that we talk about women, the way that um, my partner interacts with women, the way, you know, the way that we don't put limitations on, on women's dreams or, or potential. That is is much harder to not even enforce, but to like hold your line at. That's been far more difficult for me, especially in my marriage, than I'd say even health issues. Well, and I think while it, as you're saying, that's been difficult for you, I've really been struck throughout this conversation at how your personality comes through and your sense of I deserve good things comes through. And I, I love that. You know, I think I'm more familiar with the mental health world and the struggles that people with mental health face than people who have physical health conditions. And so I've, I know some statistics off the top of my head on that. You know, um, with mental illness, one in two, 50% of people are going to deal with mental illness at some point during their lifetime. And something more like one in four are going to deal with it chronically or regularly. And so, and then when you add on top of that, the physical health concerns, um, medical concerns that people may have, uh, you know, a lot of us out in the dating world are aware of our own, probably could come up with a better word if I was not thinking right off the cuff, but like our liabilities, essentially, the things that maybe yeah. count in the, this is this is not the best of what I have to offer. It's just a thing that is part of the bigger picture. And so like for me, you know, I have a history of depression. I'll get seasonal depression sometimes. Mm -hmm. I have a longstanding history of anxiety. And, and so I have always felt like when I look at the dating world and all that I have to offer, you know, I also feel like, but it's going to have to be for somebody who can tolerate if mm -hmm. I might get depressed in the winter or when I'm annoyingly more anxious than other people. And so I think I love where you're coming from. I wrote down a couple notes because I always try to do that when we talk to somebody, what are some big takeaways from this? And something I wrote down was with dating, it's not complex rocket science. Courteous people remain courteous, whether you have a disability or not. And so that's why you're going to find that out along with everything else, but there's going to be tells. Are they generally a courteous and kind person? And I think you really clearly throughout the episode, and it sounds like throughout your life, are very centered on, I deserve to be happy and I deserve to be respected, even if I have some things that might be a challenge for other people to deal with. And as a reminder, so many of us do, most of us do. And so I love that message that, that you are sharing and living. So sharing with our listeners, but living every day that, yeah, you're going to have some things that might pose a challenge, but the big picture of who you are and what you bring to the table is going to be worth it for the right person. And also until that happens, you deserve to be happy and respected and to not tolerate less than that. And I love that you shared that message today. Oh, thanks. And I, you know, and it's, it carries over you know, outside of disability, right? Like if, if your partner um, doesn't respect the work you do or, you know, complains a lot about you having to work long hours during a period of time that's really important to your career, you know, women are entitled to pursue their happiness. They're entitled to ambition. And some of the happiest relationships that I know of are with, you know, I, I have this amazing group, including 
arena of hyper successful women that have men that love that about them. Like those men, those men are out there. And uh, the for me, the issue is distinguishing between men who say that they like smart, accomplished women and, and men that like also really mean that. So there's this Lizzo line. She says, why are men great till they got to be great? Yeah. <laughs> so you have to be able to to see that second part because it's it's sometimes and I also I also think that men who I who proclaim on dating sites that they're feminists I don't believe them I think they like when you have to shout it from the rooftops I don't believe you and I've had some of my like most sexist interactions with men who proclaim to be feminists I'll give you one quick example um, there was someone who like had feminist and women's rights all over his profile and we just started talking and he said oh, can we talk offline? Can I have your, your phone number? And I said, I'm sorry, don't give it out until I meet someone and get to know them. And I said it was because of a safety, you know, just safety concern, totally rational, reasonable. And he goes, well, I'm not interested in dating someone who isn't open to taking risks. I'm like, okay, Mr. Feminist. All right. So you're not, you're not, we're not, that's the real truth. But like, women's boundaries, we're, we're not going to support that. So I actually, like, I almost think it's a red flag when women, when men have feminist on their profile, because I, some of those men are the worst <laughs> when it comes to gender. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it five stars so that others have a chance to listen to it as well. And make sure to subscribe so that you can get our future episodes. You can become a part of our community by joining the Strangers on the Internet Facebook group or following us at Swipe Strangers on Twitter or on Instagram. I would like to thank my husband, Carlos Farini, for sound editing, as well as Vlad Kuyushuklu for permission to use his music for this podcast. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thanks. Thanks.